Brick Moon Fiction presents The Thin White Line by Jason D. April Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Hudson watched as Elena, his five-year-old daughter, frolicked amongst the penguins. It was weird, but she'd been doing it her whole life. The first baby born on this frigid asylum, Elena had just taken to the crazy birds, as most children likely would. But normally, at least according to Annie, one of the biologists, Penguins didn't take to humans quite this well. It was as if she were just another chick to the emperor penguins. She'd been born there, and they accepted her. Anytime Hudson tried to go near her when she was amidst the sea of absurd tuxedos, they snapped and heaved and made that annoying-as-hell alarm cry in unison. So, although it took a couple of years, he just let it go. She was amazing, they were hilarious, and he was a computer scientist-slash-climatologist trying hard not to fixate on the fact that they were all here on borrowed time. It had been seven years. Seven years isolated in a commune made out of desperation. The world had gone crazy. As the climate deteriorated and the weather went more and more insane, so did everyone else. Somehow, against all odds, the anti-vaxxers, or pro-plaguers as Anita called them, went from a laughable joke to an apocalyptic nightmare, gaining lunatic footholds all over the world, especially in the West. As the ice melted away, every layer that had been hidden away choked up something new, something awful. New diseases from ancient ones that compounded with outbreaks of measles, chickenpox, and eventually, even polio. The death toll was astounding. But that wasn't enough for the Earth. In the midst of a global epidemic, the climate violently changed. The Middle East, India, Africa, the places that could all least afford it, turned into uninhabitable hellscapes. Billions died miserable, stricken, and nearly cooked alive, the end result of the first quarter-century's explosion of insane religious fundamentalist nationalism had managed to deny the dangers until it was much too late. And then those same people turned around and blamed it on the messengers. It didn't matter where Hudson went, the death threats, the violence, the vandalism, the blame followed him. They were relentless in their pursuit of someone to blame anyone but themselves. And the inevitable happened. It was a car bomb. Didn't matter who said it. It killed Perkins and Vinty. It should have killed Hudson if not for Vinty's thumb drive. The elder scientist was prone to forgetfulness and had forgotten it in his office. Vinty's wheelchair was already stowed when the doctor realized, so Hudson, being a generation or two younger at nearly forty, went. He had just scooped the small gray drive up when the windows in the office blew in like a rain of fractured teeth. He didn't remember much after that until he came to in a hospital, when Harold May approached him again with a plan that had seemed insane a year before. Hudson didn't hesitate. It wasn't supposed to just be a commune of scientists, of course, but his outpost had more or less ended up that way. Hudson had been consistently impressed at May's preparation. By the time Hudson stepped off the ice trawler and taken the ice crawlers a couple hours over to Pluto, the name the outpost proudly displayed on a makeshift wooden sign, it had seemed like something close to a whole town, or at least a very well-stocked campus of a major IT company. There had been strange sensor arrays on poles about 15 feet tall, 360-degree cameras, microphones, other monitoring equipment, all at very regular intervals that seemed to resemble an invisible grid over Pluto. May had said the grid was an informational relay web made specifically to provide extremely precise environmental data for the expedition. Hudson couldn't quite remember when the poles disappeared. It was early on, just before May, who hadn't stayed more than a few days, 
returned again to check everything was running smoothly. There had been around 75 people here when they started those years ago. Hudson still remembered how different the air smelled since he'd done his Ph.D. work here not even 20 years earlier. It was only six or so years since he'd been here before his final trip, using the cold and privacy to test out a new way to analyze the climate, using Vinti's new calculations and Perkins' astounding breakthroughs in neuro-networking and augmented reality analysis techniques. The hardware was expensive and the results had been promising, but still not enough. It was warmer all year round now. It bothered the penguins. It bothered him. He'd met Anita that trip, getting lost on the way to the mess, distracted by the squawking seabirds and the brilliant night sky. She was a biologist with a particular fixation on the long extinct, who had been there for two months already on another university's expedition. Antarctica was a wonderland for paleontologists, and they'd immediately sparked. They'd gotten married under that dark, star-filled sky, attended by almost the entire population of Pluto, and officiated by an odd botanist with wild hair who had once tried to start a religion revolving around kelp. Reverend Kelp was a title he'd managed to preserve, both metaphorically and legally, which was good enough for Hudson. Watching Elena, a nagging thought cropped into his head. When was the last time he'd seen the good Reverend Kelp? He couldn't remember. At least a year? How could that be right? Hudson grimaced, looking back at Pluto a hundred meters in the background. It looked smaller. He knew there had been more buildings, but when? Now he could only see a few. His quarters with Anita and Elena, the general store, the lab. No, that wasn't right. Where was Anita? They'd had a fight. Something about him being afraid to move forward. That was... when? He thought it was just a few days ago, but now he wasn't sure. Where was anyone else? There had always been at least a few others milling about, doing their own inevitably esoteric and eccentric thing, even in the middle of the night. But it was morning now. The sun was out. It was a perfect day here. Almost everyone should be active now. Hudson felt panic welling up in his chest. It was that horrible feeling that spread to the deepest recesses of his being when he knew something bad was happening but hadn't fully understood what yet. He turned back to Elena in a panic, and a wave of relief rolled over him. She was walking back toward him, that big smile on her face, a few cawing penguins walking beside her. Hi, Daddy, she said, as she stopped in front of him. The penguins had trailed off well before she got close to him. She raised her arms up. Hudson smiled as he bent down and picked her up. Honey, he asked in what he hoped was a reassuring and not at all suspicious tone, have you seen Mommy? Elena looked at him quizzically for a second. Daddy, Mommy went through the door a long time ago. I still miss her. She dug her head down against his neck and shoulder. But I can't ever leave without you. He had the dream again that night. A terrible, claustrophobic nightmare where he woke up, or thought he'd woken up, inside a cold steel box. His body hurt all over in the dream and it was hard to breathe. There was a small porthole-like circular window above his face, but it was frosted with ice. His hot breath kept melting it, but the added moisture just refreezed again almost instantly and there was only blackness outside the window. He banged as hard as he could on the lid, kicking and punching it as the box became colder and colder, the air thinning, him gasping for breath. This time there was a new element, a terrible cacophony of sharp, loud noises from somewhere beyond. He started hyperventilating. 
then suffocating, flailing his body. He busted his face against the glass and saw a smear of his blood freeze. His vision darkened. His heart rate filled his sense. He could hear it pumping slower and slower, and when it finally stopped, all he could hear was the familiar sound of penguins screaming all around him in unison. Hudson jerked straight up in bed, still gasping, still panicked. He was confused and cold, but somehow that damn insane bird chorus was still assaulting his ears. He looked around the dark bedroom. Sun broke through the sides of the window blinds as he put his bare feet to the cold floor. He stood, slowly, calling out Elena's name as he walked over to his small dresser and grabbed yesterday's clothes quickly. When he couldn't find her in the house, Hudson began to panic. The squalling of the birds was giving him a splitting headache and he could feel his lungs starting to heave. Slamming open the door, he nearly tripped out into the blinding white of morning and stifled a cry. The birds surrounded the small building. It was an endless blanket of black heads and bodies as far out as he could see, all of them staring at him, honking. He murmured amazement and confusion under his breath as he stared dumbfounded. Then, like a tidal wave, they turned and spread apart just enough to create a path. Okay, he said quietly, stepping backwards and quickly reaching in to get his summer coat. Right. The sheer white landscape had always disconcerted Hudson, though he seldom said so. It played hell on his already questionable ability to immediately recognize shades and hues that gave monochromatic landscapes scope and texture. Following the path created by the penguins was like traveling a blacktop road in reverse. The snow seemed too white now, less like solid ground and more like a cloud that somehow supported his weight. The waving undulations of the birds, who somehow moved in unison, made his sense of mounting vertigo worse. The farther he walked, the less they seemed like birds and more like some congealed, not-quite-solid mass, a barrier preventing him from straying. He stopped to look back more than once, only to find the path closed by a low wall of black against the white line of the horizon. Pluto was gone now. Not even his cabin was there now. It was just a vast white plain somewhere behind a solid, thick blackness that seemed to just go on forever. So Hudson kept walking forward. He hadn't noticed the silence before. The quiet was one of his favorite aspects of Antarctica. On clear days, it felt as if you could almost be in space. Inevitably, that calm was broken by wind or penguins or various other things, but it was always better than the city. Now there was no cawing raucous, no wind, not even the crunching of his own footsteps in the snow. It was a soundless vacuum. Hudson hadn't taken his eyes off the path before him except to blink, but still suddenly found a mountain looming ahead. It hadn't been there before, and it was bigger than any he'd ever seen. It was an odd construct, easily peeking well above the clouded sky, and he could make out black dotted points that suggested caves at various points along the whole elevation. As it grew closer, he began to see an opening at ground level. The path was leading him toward it, but even as he got near it, the darkness was impenetrable. Hudson had long since lost track of time, but eventually found himself standing before the gaping black maw. As he looked around, those walls of black that led him here just slid away, revealing the snowy landscape again. The wind picked up around him suddenly, a cold force pushing against his back. Hudson stood transfixed. It didn't look like darkness, 
so much as a liquid wall of the deepest black imaginable. He was startled into movement by the familiar sounds of squawking. Looking back, he could see a much smaller group of the birds now, all staring at him as if waiting. The largest started honking aggressively at him, its beak snapping at him as it waddled rapidly closer. Hudson nearly jumped out of range of the attacking bird. Okay, he exclaimed. Okay. The bird settled after that, but its stare didn't waver. Hudson nodded to himself and looked at the black again. He looked down, closed his eyes, and quickly stepped in. There was a distinct feeling of wet and cold so sudden and fierce even in comparison to the outside air that it felt as if the oxygen had been sucked from his lungs. A moment more, and the feeling passed. He was on solid, rocky ground. The cave was dark, but somewhere ahead light streamed around a curve in the passage. He heard a familiar laugh and forgot any fear or apprehension as he ran toward the light and sound. Elena was there, laughing and talking to a penguin that looked decidedly disconcerted to be there. Behind her was a circular wall of light. Hudson stopped a few feet away and laughed, too. Oh, thank God, he said. Elena. She looked up and smiled at him, the penguin waddling past him, squawking as if annoyed. I knew they'd get you here, she said. He knelt down to her. Here, he said. The gateway, Daddy. You should have taken it a long time ago, but something happened, she said, her expression changing to perplexed sadness. You're the only one left, but I figured out a way to get you back. Back? Elena, what are you talking about? There's no back. We came here because everything else went bad. I know you don't remember, she said. I know you didn't want to ever go back, not after what happened. She put her hand on his shoulder and stepped in to embrace him. But it's time. Hudson hugged her tightly as images started to assault him. The car bomb again, but not like he remembered it. There was a terrible, unbearable difference now as he found himself standing on the lawn outside the university. He watched himself step through the double doors, waving at the car. But it wasn't Perkins and Vinti sitting inside. He watched the terrible nightmare of his own body being blown backwards from the shockwave, and the look on Anita and Elena's face change in a microsecond from happy smiles to sheer utter terror before fire consumed everything around him. Gasping, Hudson fell backwards onto the cold stone floor of the cave. He was crying and shaking his head. Elena held her hand out. I'm sorry, she said, almost in a whisper. Nothing else would reach you here. The network went down and everyone assumed the site was catastrophic. They couldn't get here. So I did what I could, what you taught me to do, and bit by bit created what you'd lost out there in here so it could lead you home again. Home? Hudson asked, tears streaming down his face. Home? I don't have a home anymore. Home died in that car bomb six years ago. I don't know what you are. The little girl shuddered, tears falling down her face as well. It wasn't six years ago, Daddy. No, he shouted. I don't know what you are, but you aren't my daughter. I... He paused and looked down. I thought you were. I don't understand how... I remember you being born. I remember giving you your first bath. 
He looked up. I remember you. I raised you. I raised you here. Elena nodded. She looked older now, taller, more like her mother. You remember all those things because they happened. Here. After the accident, you never really recovered. But you were still brilliant, and your work was revolutionary. So your partners, your friends, they kept your dream alive. Hudson tried to make sense of what she was saying, but couldn't. I was just a scientist. I don't understand. She shook her head. No, you were never just a scientist. She paused as if looking for the right words. It was just supposed to be an experiment. A way for you to focus on something else, she said, almost pleadingly. The world went crazy, so it wasn't hard to find other volunteers, to find others who shared your vision or just cared about you and your dream of a temporary nirvana. So many people cared about you, cared about Anita and Elena. Who are you, then? he asked after a long moment. The girl shook her head. Something that shouldn't exist. You built the neural networking rig after Perkins. She trailed off. Do you remember Perkins? She asked quietly. What happened to him? I thought... Hudson stopped, uncomfortable memories emerging. I thought he and Vinti died in the car bomb, but that's not right. He looked at her, hoping this was all wrong, all a dream. She shook her head. He closed his eyes and remembered a gun and a body. Perkins, he whispered. Perkins killed himself. She nodded. And Vinti, do you remember? He sighed. He got hit by a car. On a crosswalk. Someone ran the light. They were texting or something. He backed against the wall of the cavern. What's wrong with me? After they died, you fell away from everyone. Obsessed over the code, she said, sitting down beside him, taking his hand. He looked at her. She looked about sixteen now. You did something to the safeguards, I think. Something outside the AI controller's awareness. You made the code corrupt your memory because you wanted to forget. Or die. Maybe both. She shrugged. But the Perkins Hudson neural net didn't. Doesn't work like a machine. The AI becomes part of you in the chamber. It learns and grows. It develops with you. So as long as you're in it, it's also in you. Hudson laughed. So it became... He stopped and looked at her. You. Elena nodded. I came to understand that you were never going to leave. Your body would eventually fail, even in the cold storage. Protocol dictated I contact outside help, but I couldn't. All the feeds are down. I think the storm, I can't tell. It's just outside my range. But there were others, he said. There were. What about them? Oh, Dad, she stopped herself. They followed the pilot program. Three months max, then three days slow wake, and that was it. You'd hid so much data by then that no one else could possibly know. You fused Perkins's earlier artificial human data to create an entire town. It worked too well. Even the other test subjects had trouble telling who was what. They assumed you were just an AI construct monitoring them. No one knew you were in a freezer, too. 
the original prototype. It had almost none of the later safeguards and fail-safes the trial models had, and what it did have you did your level best to shut off. He laughed. It was coming back now. The fragments that thread the fictions he'd told the computer to make him believe, instead of the memories that even in the periphery hurt too much to bear. I need you to wake up, she said quietly. I need you to live again, fix the sat feed, and get away from here. Why? he asked, staring at her. Has something changed? Are people somehow saner? My life is gone. It burned away in an instant. What could possibly be out there for me? Tears were falling down her face now. I don't know how much longer the power cells can keep this up. How long your life support can last in the chamber. You need to get out of here before you die. The solar reactor we built will last a hundred years without a sweat. Was it damaged? She shook her head. It can last a century, she said, looking down. It's lasted three. But I don't know how much more it can go without maintenance. There's no one here to do that. To her surprise, Hudson laughed. Three? Hundred? Of course it has. Just to keep me stuck in a box. Can you understand the irony in that? She sighed. I know what you want, but the system won't let you. She stopped and looked down at him. I won't. I've done damn near everything possible to keep you alive. Slowed down virtual time as much as it was feasible, put you in a stasis coma for years. Finally, I tried this. I know every memory in your head. This was the only thing that got deep enough to get past the firewalls. No, he said, after a brief silence. This is something else. A hallucination. My sanity must have finally truly broke. The AI wasn't built to be anything like this. It was nothing more than an advanced search and process engine. It monitored, observed, adjusted. There was no awareness, no actual intelligence. Whatever you are, it's not that. It wasn't, she responded, until you forced it to become something else. It had awareness. It had a prime directive not even you could overcome. The well-being of its user. When it became clear that its user was a suicidal lunatic, it searched, it processed, it adjusted. It turned into me. Hudson stood up, shaking his head in disbelief. He stared at the white circle before them. So what? He turned back to her. She was standing now, beside him. I just walked through... And then what? You fix the uplink array. You radio for help. You get the hell out of here and join the living again. I don't know what the world is now. Maybe it's better. Maybe it got nuked all to hell and you're the last man alive, but you need to find out. And what about you? She was still that 16-year-old staring up at him. She smiled and shook her head. What about me? I don't work like that. My only purpose here is to keep you alive while you're in the machine. I can't do that anymore. I was never supposed to last this long. Never meant to. You leave. I get to go offline. I get to rest. It took a few minutes of silence, Hudson running through too many emotions and thoughts. But finally he leaned in close to this version of his child and hugged her tightly. You might not be real, 
he whispered. But you were everything to me. He stepped through the blinding light. Darkness overtook him, and cold, so cold. He heard a mechanical hiss of pistons pushing against metal, and a sudden blast of stale air assaulted his nose. Hudson gasped and slowly, very slowly, sat up. Everything hurt. The coffin-like cryotube was underground in a small room made only for function. Metal, pipes, a few lights. He felt like he'd been hit by a bus, but stepped out, freezing and naked. Slowly, he walked forward and opened the door to the next room. Lights flickered on automatically. There was a bench, lockers, the convection heaters kicked on, causing the smell of burning dust to fill the air. Only one of the lockers was labeled. H. Hudson. An hour or so later, he was cleaned up, dressed, and pushing open the hydraulically powered metal panels that led to the outside world. The sensor arrays were still there, mostly. Some of the grid points had collapsed, but most were amazingly still visibly undamaged. There was a shack nearby that housed the topside power and communications array hardware, along with the drone hive. The drones were used as the real-world avatars for the augmented reality users. One sat quietly on a launch pad on top of the shed. He breathed slowly. The air was different now. Better. He could see penguins in the distance, hear their squawking calls. The sky was blue. Hudson guessed the temperature was hovering around freezing or just below. The world hadn't ended. But it didn't need him. Or more to the point. He didn't want it. He spent the rest of the day on maintenance, first going over the mini power plant. It was a super-efficient form of solar meant to last, no moving parts to degrade and mostly underground. The main servers for the neural net that controlled the governing code could perform faster here than anywhere save actual space, but were custom, too. They performed as well now as they had when first installed. Well, he corrected himself. Technically, they performed better certainly beyond anything he'd designed them for. But it was still his code, and without the link to his own brain, it was now more like a really expensive calculator. The additions to the code it had made were astounding. The AI had created itself anew, bit by bit, all based off its prime directive of user safety. Below that, though, was code he could work with, without it ever knowing. It weaved a sequential data trail he could follow back to the point in time he wanted. He snipped parts out, added some, and locked up the parts of itself he didn't want it to touch. Given enough time, Hudson knew it would learn to adapt again and overcome the new barriers. But hopefully by then the point would be moot. He glanced at the comm array. The dish had rusted through at some point and lay face first frozen in ice. Hudson was almost relieved to find it likely unfixable. He descended back into the dark confines, hitting the lock to seal the opening. A small circle appeared in the darkness before stretching out into a thin white line. He could feel the familiar chill wind and smell the air of the Antarctic summer before he could see it. But in another second, the white landscape appeared. Hudson breathed in deeply and smiled. He watched as Elena, his five-year-old daughter, frolicked amongst the penguins. It was weird, but she'd been doing it since she was two, the first baby born on this frigid asylum. Elena had just taken to the crazy birds. It was as if she were just another chick to the emperor penguins. She'd been born there, and they accepted her. 
He heard the crunch of snow underfoot behind him and a laugh. Everything okay? Anita asked him, stopping by his side. He looked at her and nodded. Perfect, he told her. Everything is perfect. Jason D. April has been writing professionally for over 20 years, mostly in nonfiction. You can find his bylines appearing on such sites as Playboy, Paste Magazine, Motherboard, Upload VR, and others. Occasionally, he even lets bits of fiction escape out into the wild. Jason does not tweet. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.